broadcasting from the campus of Lynn Benton Community College. We are the Mid-Valley STEM CTE Hub. I'm your host, Casey, and this, this is Closing the Gap. on hey closing the gap listeners this is your host casey today on the show i'm talking to natalie and rachel the hosts of wisterhood a podcast put on by women in stem portland our topic of conversation today will be what it's like being in science communication so join us and find out what we think i've suddenly gotten nervous (laughs) Um, well, hey everyone, I'm Rachel. <laughs> I'm Casey. Um, I'm Natalie, and today we're gonna be talking about um, what it's like to host, create, produce a podcast created by and for um, like women and in the context of STEM. Um, so yeah. Casey, do you want to just talk a little bit about um, who you are, what your org does? Yeah, totally. Um, So my name is Casey Montgomery. I work for the Mid-Valley STEM CTE Hub. And for them, I produce a show called Closing the Gap, where I talk to women who are working, women and gender minorities who are working in uh, STEAM and skilled trades around Oregon, primarily sometimes, if I find someone cool. I'll like go out of my bubble of Oregon, but yeah. And um, we, we do a lot of things at the hub. Um, my teammates will be going into classrooms and libraries and we even have a maker space where we're getting students that are uh, pre-K through 20. So college age, um, some hands-on STEM learning. I'll go next. <laughs> um, so I'm Rachel Cleveland. I work for WIS um, for Women in Science in Portland, Oregon. I've been doing the pod for uh, maybe six months uh, with Natalie, the the veteran podcaster. <laughs> and um, since Natalie knows a little bit more about WIS, I'm going to let her, I'm going to cop out and let Natalie take the reins on trying to summarize all the great things that WIS does. <laughs> yes, no, it's all good. I'm Natalie. Um, I am, um, I've been involved with WIS for the last, ooh, this is coming up on five years. That's crazy. Um, wow. Oh my goodness. That's a little scary. Um, <laughs> That's neither here nor there, I guess. Um, But so (laughs) one thing that we do um, just as an organization broadly is we try to improve, like increase the amount of women and underrepresented minorities in STEM and also improve their retention. Um, One thing we think about a lot is like the leaky pipeline sort of metaphor where like women will eventually, you know, for reasons that are related to family, you know, pay, gender, um, gendered gaps um and then as well as like definitely there are um 
real cases and important cases to talk about in terms of like when women get forced out of STEM due to violence and other kinds of, you know, abuse and workplace related settings. So that is all sort of like within, you know, what we hope to be our purview. We do a a lot of like professional sort of development things. Um, We have like mixers and workshops we run this really cool negotiation boot camp every year um we also just have like advocacy initiatives to help raise awareness for different you know topics that are of interest and related to women and gender minorities and stuff yeah so i i think today um we are just really interested in like talking about similarities and differences and you know what we do um for this podcast situation we talked a little bit about you know the idea of like one thing that we all sort of like that is the bread and butter of this format is like the interview and you know the listening component of that and so I'm just sort of wondering like what your your thoughts are on what that process is like and what makes it easy and what makes it hard Totally. I feel like one of the hardest things when I started off podcasting was to listen and be present because I think being present is listening and absorbing and being able to have a retort to what someone says uh, that is relevant and, you know, adds to the conversation. Um, I often think that like if, if you're even, if you're podcasting or you're in, in the office or you're in the lab, one of the hardest things is to be able to take that breath and be present and listen. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally understand that. I, especially when I was younger, I struggled with interrupting people because my mind sometimes would just work so fast and I'd forget things so quickly. I couldn't help but blurt them out. And while I think I have mostly gotten over that at this point podcasting certainly has helped with that skill set of being able to take a pause and just absorb the information uh and also thinking really critically about it because it's not only listening but you have to like you were saying like come up with a retort come up with a question so or some sort of response that keeps the conversation going Yeah, I totally agree with what you had both said. And I think that, like, being present and not, like, fit, like, fidgeting is fine, obviously, but just sort of, like, not, you know, your mind can't go other places. And I think sort of this idea of, like, being a listener is to sort of fully invest yourself in what other people are saying is, like, it's a tall order um, and something that I think. I mean, I'm sure there are countless books written about it, Um, but it's like definitely a skill and like a muscle. Definitely. I feel like another thing that I often hear is um, confidence being an issue when it comes to listening, because instead of being present outward, you're more present inward. Uh, And I think, I mean, as as young professionals, I feel like confidence can be a, a thing that we're all working on or I mean, you even hear uh, professionals that have like this imposter syndrome where there's this issue of confidence. And I wonder how we can take lessons from podcasting and being present and listening and, and apply that into how we just show up in general. Yeah. I think like the art of asking a good question is really 
analogous to STEM in a lot of ways, um, like sort of like you're saying with, um, you know, just like tr- trying to invest yourself in, in the moment and to be like present. Um, I love what you had said, but now I can't repeat it because I like was so like in love with what the, the little like phrase, but um, <laughs> I don't know if I can see, quote myself is... verbatim. <laughs> See, like my this is this the other is problem what... too. My brain is full of holes. Um, <laughs> um, that's that's what the podcasting software is for. <laughs> yes. So true. Um, no, but yeah, I think it's like very similar. I think it, this I think has been said to me a bunch of times in STEM, where it's like it's more about asking the right questions and having the right answer. And so this is like I feel like a practice in that. For sure. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny, Casey, I didn't really think about how the podcast, like po- the act of podcasting and the skills you develop applies to STEM. It's it's getting very meta and I, I kind of love it. And I was just thinking about how you mentioned how important the listening skills were and being able to listen and something that's interesting for me is like, I'm not used to I don't want to go too dramatic and say I'm not used to being listened to, but being early in my career, I'm not exactly a person that someone goes to for that advice and for like, I'm not a decision maker at this point, you know, I'm at the start of my career. So it's kind of interesting how when I put my podcasting hat on, I, in a way, am becoming the decision maker and I'm not only asking questions but being asked questions in my opinion matters and I'm not entirely sure where I was going with this but I just find it interesting to that we're giving women a platform when they don't when they haven't always had a platform I think that um the asking the good questions is really important and oddly enough I was just talking to I was talking to my, my director um, last week about giving a presentation on gender performance and being like, well, I'm not like really an expert. I'm just taking this class in like, like global feminist theory right now. And um, I don't feel like an expert and I don't know if I'm like ready to, to really like participate as a teacher <laughs> in this role. And she basically was saying the same thing to me of like, Sometimes just like bringing the topic up and asking the questions is enough for people to really start learning because you can't really be like the only path on someone's learning journey. You just kind of have to like get that spark going. Yeah, definitely. I totally didn't think about it in like those meta terms of being like, you know, the act of asking and the act of like listening is one that is empowering, but it reminds me of you know what I do during the day a lot of like my job is asking patients questions um and like a lot of the job that doctors nurses other healthcare practitioners also do is like centering patients in that way and thinking about it in terms of like what are the questions I can ask them that um can help them like come to conclusions that would be helpful and empowering you know it's an interesting one I I, uh think I remember you saying that you were working in neuroscience 
so what does that even entail? Like, I don't, I don't really understand like what neuroscience is like on, um, I don't know, just like a surface level, really. Um, we were talking a little bit about our backgrounds and I'm like a communications person all the way. So I guess I'll ask you a very typical question for my show. And what, what does neuroscience mean? Yeah, no, totally. Um, so, I mean, it is like a science of the brain. So, you know, the brain, the spinal cord, everything connected to it um, is, you know, that's like the material, right? That's, you know, there's there's anatomy, there's whatever. Um, then there's, of course, like the cognition piece, um, memory, emotion, learning, um, and how there's a whole like that in and of itself. And then there's sort of like the space in between and the Venn diagram in the middle. That's like, how does the anatomy in or the structure inform the function of the brain? Um, what I do is I, I work in the field of um, delirium, which is a syndrome that ha- can happen to people who are more vulnerable, so typically older adults, but really anybody, and also children as well, um, after like some kind of insult to their brain. So it can be like surgery, it could be a fall, um, it could be, you know, other infections sometimes as well. Um, and they enter sort of like this altered mental status state that's characterized by inattention. It can be, especially in older adults, um, something that can lead to Alzheimer's dementia um, over time just because, you know, of their cognitive frailty is um, how it's conceptualized in the field. Um, So on a day-to-day basis, I like screen patients for delirium, um, which is always really interesting because you're asking them a standard set of questions, but everybody has very different answers. Um, which is always just, I think it's very, it's fascinating. It's a little magical, I feel like. That's awesome. I'm super fascinated by that. Yeah. Rachel, would you like to also like to chime in and tell us like uh, what you do? I didn't, also, I didn't get as much of um, an insight when we were talking before the show, but I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, so I work in natural resources. I got my undergrad degree in environmental science and biology, and then got my master's in uh, natural resources and environmental management. And so right now, I work in forestry, specifically with wildfire communication, outreach, and mitigation. So most of my job is reaching out to communities and encouraging wildfire safe practices and wildfire preparation, as well as kind of getting insights from the community as to what they want to see with wildfire impacts and mitigation and just the different activities one can do to best prepare for wildfire. And um, yeah, a little bit of risk reduction and kind of all sorts of fun stuff. It's really interesting. Um, kind of like what you were saying, Natalie, how like it's interesting to ask the same questions but get different answers. I feel like that's a little bit the case with my job as well because part of my job is to understand what people want to see and their perceptions of wildfire risk and mitigation. So while I don't think my questions are quite as standardized as yours, I do ask kind of 
similar questions and it, it's very interesting to see or to hear different results. Totally. Yeah, that is really interesting to think about like the when you're trying to sort of get information from like a stakeholder group, whether that's like a patient or like, I don't know, Joe, whoever who lives in the forest, like you're trying to, you know, diagnose a problem. And so, yeah. And and Casey, could you um, talk to us about like what you do day to day for your job? I guess we didn't really discuss this, but I don't, I'm not sure if you're a student or if you um, work full time for the podcast or something else, but I, I'm curious like how did how did you were you always interested in STEM and that's kind of what brought you to this position or it was kind of happenstance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of happenstance. So I joined the hub as an intern three and a half years ago now, um, and they needed someone to do their social media marketing, and I was going to school for visual communications, so I applied, and then that became kind of like a permanent part-time job. And then it became a full-time position uh, with the college. So doing the podcast is actually a small part of my day-to-day duties. I'm uh, maintaining the website and um, doing all the communications on our social media, also doing some photojournalism work um, where I'm covering my my colleagues' programs, uh, taking photos, and then um, either writing stories about that or collaborating with them on writing stories about that, um, making videos, um, like a project, like a STEM hands-on kind of project. Our last one we did was how to make a zine and why zines are great um, for any sort of classroom project. And also um, advertisement things like we are the Mid Valley STEM CT Hub and this is what we do and who we are. Yeah, so it's a lot of communications-based work and no two days are really ever the same because uh, there's so many different things going on. Oh, that's super cool. You, you like wear many hats under the umbrella of communications. <laughs> yeah. Do you have, do you have like um, a favorite medium that you like to work on? Um, I mean, I think I, I came back to school by way of working with cameras. So I really enjoy the, the photojournalism aspect uh, and the video creation. Um, really starting to learn to love writing. Um, but I've always loved podcasts too. I mean, I've been listening to podcasts for, you know, 10, 15 years. So it's always been kind of like a low key dream to, you know, have a podcast that I'm working on. So I don't, I don't know if there is a a favorite, but there's definitely many in the running. (laughs) I was going to ask about like the photojournalism slash like the visual communications portion of things. I took a class recently about I feel like I talk about this every other episode. I'm so sorry to our <laughs> listeners, but I I took a class called um, The Visual Cultures of Medicine, Science, and Technology. And it was a really wide ranging class. We talked about like museum curation. We talked about medical horror. But another thing we talked about is um, just like the ways that science is depicted in visual form and I'm just sort of wondering like as an artist as a photojournalist um how do you like think about like the camera in terms of what it's portraying and do you think in like how do you do questions of like representation or truth sort of come into that 
mind space broadly in photojournalism or like when you think about what you're trying to render I'm just sort of like yeah I guess just wondering about like what are the decisions that get made right so I think there's a lot of really good similarities between science and journalism we're both seeking the truth we're both trying to figure out what is is the most true thing that we can determine from what from all the evidence that we're collecting so going into an event it could be like into a classroom let's say i'm going in with telling the story as plainly as possible this is what i'm seeing this is what you would see if you were here this is what people are doing and and the types of equipment that we're using Um, so i tried to go at it from maybe the least artistic way possible and it's just documentation. It's basically visual notes is how I'm approaching it. That's so interesting. That's like actually so fascinating <laughs> to me. Like the idea of, um, yeah, cause it's, yes, I don't know. I, I feel like I don't have enough like technical language to, to like know too much about it, but it is just really interesting. The concept of like, you know, how can you, it's like data. Um, anyway, I'm just, that is really, really cool. Yeah, we use it for data collection as well. Um, totally. For like the way of like uh, talking about or talking to our grant funders, uh, talking to our audience. This is why you should do it. This is our data and you can see it here. Um, and I'm sure as you know, as um, professionals <laughs> that reading a lot can get boring. So um, having those visual aids like photos, graphs, etc. really help break up the technical reading side of things. That's very common in natural resources is actually called photo point monitoring. And so when you do restoration work in an area, what you can do is have some sort of landmark or, or GPS plot. And then essentially you just take pictures over time to see how the landscape is changing Um, so a lot of times that can be like, oh, we cleared out all the invasives, we planted some natives, and then we're going to take pictures maybe every month, I don't know, for a couple years, um, and see how the plants are growing and if the invasives are coming back or not. Um, it can be common for fire recovery to see what's coming back, how quickly are they coming back, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so... It's, it's very common in natural resources to, to have some before and after photos or some photo point monitoring. Because, um, yeah, you can capture a lot very easily with pictures rather than trying to say, you know, describe it. Um, but, yeah, Casey, when you were talking about, like, it, it's collecting data, it's kind of interesting because, like, photography in the art sense is you're almost trying to, like, capture the world in such a way that reflects how you see it rather than when it's applied in STEM, you're trying to capture it in its true form per se. And it's kind of interesting how I took photography in high school in a more artistic sense. And um, it's just kind of interesting how you look at the, the lens you use is kind of different if you're trying to do a more artistic form of expression rather than like trying to capture things as they are and how you're using the same tool, but kind of looking at things differently. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's just a skill in, in um, communicating. 
oh god words i've hit my wall oh no <laughs> skip that cut that cut that <laughs> it's all good yes i agree it's that, <laughs> it's that time of night isn't it <laughs> Um, well, if it happens to come back, please bring us back there. One thing this makes me think about, too, is um, Susan Sontag writes, I'm forgetting the name of the book now, but she sort of writes about the ways that, like, the Vietnam War was depicted, like, being one of the first wars that had journalists who were taking pictures on the grounds. And there was just sort of like this, you know, fuzzy line between like, yes, they're there to document. um, And so like, you know, does it, if some photographs were like, for example, if some bodies were rearranged so that, you know, they could all be in frame at once, for example, is that how close is that to the truth? And is it, I mean, it's clearly talking about like a real like human truth of, war and its consequences and violence um and you know all the downfalls that come with that but there is some level of manipulation of the visual like scene i guess and i think it's it's interesting to think about you know in that sense those even though like those obviously war journalists are there to document what's happening and to be able to report back what's happening but they're also telling a story and i think that's really similar even in science when like we collect data you know that's not data doesn't really exist in a cold hard vacuum we're always trying to tell a story and so it's just like really interesting to think about how like that visual aspect of it and how like the 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 presence of like the camera can alter the way we see objectivity. Yeah, I like that. That was good. I, yeah, I agree, though. There's a lot of, um, yeah, we're, we're here and, like, we could say this is the, the truth, but also, you know, like, what angle are you shooting from? What's happening behind the camera? It, like, data, you know, a photo is a tool that, you know, you could read it really any way you wanted to or include or not include uh, things that you don't, want people to see or you want people to focus on yeah yeah plants don't react to a camera which certainly is helpful (laughs) but you do have to be extra careful with like what time of day is it and are you being consistent and are you facing the exact same direction and you know sometimes depending on how scientific we're talking here they'll um leave little like stakes in the ground so you can get the exact same angle and there'll be like a a scale that's put in the photo so that like basically they have you try to get a photo point as consistent as possible but even then you know humans are fallible and so like we make mistakes and so you do like there's a lot of technicality that goes into creating an accurate photo point um just because of all these different slight changes and the weather and the time of day and how all of that can impact the ultimate photo that you get yeah i it's interesting because like photo like imaging is used obviously a lot in like scientific like research context and also like medical context like for research when we like try to image the inside of a cell like so much research now is done by like making different parts of the cell fluorescent or specific proteins fluorescent under a microscope. And then, so then interpretation of data becomes like 
you know, you're just looking at an image and being like, okay, where is this in relation to this other structure? Or, you know, like, there's a lot of like hullabaloo made about localization, <laughs> which is interesting because it feels objective. But at the same time, when you like sit under a microscope and you're like squinting at a thing, you're just like, it, it's almost like I could be hallucinating this. Like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> um so, yeah, and I mean, also, you know, sort of in the context of, like, a medicine, um, I had, like, shadowed in radiology um, a couple years ago, and it was just really interesting to see how radiologists, like, will, like, look at a picture and be able to, they're, like, their their eyes are trained to, like, be able to notice, like, certain patterns and be able to sort of extrapolate, but then also, like, they have access to the broader patient's history. And so, you know, knowing their history, they might alter like, oh, like this could be X, Y, or Z, but it's probably more likely Z because of, you know, the patient's age or their like comorbidities and, you know, their medical history. And so it's just like really, it's like, yeah, there is sort of this objective picture, but it's so easily altered by context, which is just, oh, this is so cool. Love how complicated things get so quickly. Was there ever talk when you did that shadowing um, talk of like AI interpreting the imaging? Because um, I asked because in my group of friends, some of them are more on the like tech side of things. And then quite a few are also like in the med side of things. And the tech side of people were just like, I would never be a radiologist because their job's going to be replaced in like 10 years or something. So I was just curious if that was at all talked of discussed in the clinic setting um, of how that's progressing. Totally. Um, it, yes, there is like AI in both research contexts and in medicine and like radiologic contexts. Um, like a lot of the, um, like the fluorescence, like protein research, a lot of that, you know, is backed up by like software that's supposed to help like you figure out like whether or not what you're seeing is random chance or if it's like due to a real phenomenon. Um, I could not tell you how that works, but that's supposedly what it does. Um, and, you know, even... It's so, it is actually really interesting. Like, in, for example, when you're imaging a heart, um, one thing they'll sometimes do is like for patients who are about to have a stent put in, they have to measure like how wide like their artery is, for example, or how wide this valve is. And what they would used to do is they, they would like literally physically draw it out and like measure it. And now, like, a an AI can sort of approximate and then all the radiologist has to do is sort of look it over and make adjustments. Um, and so there's like that, that side of things. I know like most, if not all radiologists, I might sort of venture to say, um, would probably say that there's like an art to it that a computer would not yet be able to replicate. But I don't know what a computer scientist would say about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I keep telling myself that um, AI is not going to take my job yet because it still needs someone to tell it that like the sky doesn't match like the rest of the the landscape or something. Uh, but I I also in my just in my job in communications I'm like oh no the the AI is going to like make me obsolete because you know chat GPT and 
uh, Adobe just released like a really great AI edition on a lot of their programs and things like that. But the radiology thing you were talking about, that was fascinating that you could measure the inside of an artery from, is it, is that an x-ray or a CAT scan or what, what kind of imaging would that be? Yeah, I think, um, so I don't want to promulgate misinformation because I don't know the details, but I think like there are certain cases where you, so like, yes, you would be measuring for a stent or some cases where you want to measure like how much the, the structure is constricting and then expanding upon like the heart beating. And so you want to take like the min and the max and you would have to just like measure the diameter. Um, and I think, and I say that because it has to be a video um, and it, like when you like see it on the screen, it's a moving image, if you will, just because if I were in the 20, 1920s. Um, so I don't exactly know how that is done. My guess is that they like put a little camera that's attached to the end of this like really thin wire and they like thread it up there, um, which is just like so wild that we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of scary to think about a little camera traveling through your body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, speaking yeah. of job replacements, my husband, he's um a physician assistant and he's figuring out how he wants to like take his notes. And I guess him and another provider are playing around with different AI software to take notes um like during patient visits and I yeah, I just find it fascinating, the idea of, like, what jobs will be taken away permanently and at what point, up to this point, pretty much as jobs have been made obsolete, other jobs have replaced them. Maybe not in the same sector, but, like, there's just way more tech jobs than we had. But I would think that there's going to be a limit to where we start taking away jobs and not having anything to replace with them. And it makes me wonder if, like, the new craze, like, you know how things are, like, all natural or organic or what have you, the next, or, like, ethically sourced, and the next thing is going to be human-made or, you know, no AI. Like, I wonder if that's going to be, like, a more expensive, like, premium version of things as a means to be, like, more ethical or sustainable or whatever. I just... I'm calling it now. It might take a while, but I have a feeling like, especially like in the art sector, like with AI art, like I almost wonder like if Etsy's going to be full of like made by a real human, no AI, like pay double for this because that's the right thing to do. I'm just fascinating to me. Yeah. I think that there is like a bent towards that already, like with the SAG-AFTRA strikes um, and like Hollywood and, whatever the British version of that is um, where like people are like, no, we're not, we're going to like strike content and like not talk about content um, and not support content that was created by like studios that want to exploit like the work of humans to create like then AI generated art. Um, It makes me think too, like, I mean, full disclosure on our podcast, we don't use this feature, but in the like this platform that we use to host our like video conferencing, they will generate AI show notes for you. And one feature that we do actually use <laughs> is it it'll like 
take clips of your podcast that it considers like you know ready for social media sharing and it'll like show you which ones they are so you don't have to find it yourself um which saves me time and i'm like oh thank god like the ai is my best friend now (laughs) i wonder if that's gonna get clipped (laughs) yeah yeah right yeah Yeah, it'll clip like Anywhere from like 15 sec to 60 seconds. And it saves a lot of like, it will generate anywhere from like five to seven. And usually like of those, at least one or two are usable. And that's what we'll end up using is we'll pick from there. Most of them aren't very good, but there will all there thus far, there's been at least one, usually two that are usable. And so before we know it, we'll never have to edit another podcast because AI will do it all for us. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that does no, sound it makes me think it's going to start like, <laughs> it's going to start like clipping out words. And so like, it'll like show you a clip that's like, AI is great. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like AI will take over the world. Like, okay. <laughs> right. Just creating its own propaganda. Yeah, <laughs> and then it started posting itself without like your approval. I mean, yeah. right to your Instagram, right to your Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I so think like the how point did is you? Yet. Oh, go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> oh, oh, I was gonna say. So, how did you land on the platform that you chose? I feel like um, choosing a podcast platform could be like choosing a date. Sometimes, like there are so many. And um, just and they're they're all they all have such great benefits. Um, did you feel any particular uh, any anything like exciting or particular about the one that you chose, or did it like align yeah. with any of your like STEM kind of views? Mm, that's an interesting question. I we like you had used Zoom um, like back when we were maybe podcasters. Um, I think the. <laughs> The feature that most, you know, and you're so right, it is like choosing a date. It's like the more you get to know it, the worse it gets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, no, the feature that we like most is that like even if there's lag, it, it won't take the audio that is recorded by the video, but it'll actually sort of record on the device itself so that when you're editing um you know lag doesn't become a factor which is always nice because we do all of our recording virtually um so so that was like the really like nuts and bolts part of it um the like the ai generated stuff was a plus but not like the reason but it definitely is like really nice the other thing too is it saves you can choose to um, I guess this is another AI portion. It will, you can edit based on the transcript. It'll generate an audio transcript and then you can sort of edit based on nice. that, which makes it faster. Yeah. So what I really like to do is do kind of a once over with um, the platform because yeah, I can, I can do it visually with the, with the transcript going along with it. And then because I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, I'll then put it into a different more um flexible i guess editing software where i can literally clip little things that i want so like i can edit out the like awkward pauses and the ums and the likes and that sort of stuff too and make it really nice and clean 
Um, but it does save a lot of time for sure with those AI features. It's pretty remarkable. Sounds like it's um, making it accessible, like making podcasting accessible to more people. Totally. I think it would probably take, I don't know, about twice as long to do it without it. But what's really nice is like the transcription feature is there, which I, it's, you know, a major accessibility feature uh, without extra work on our part, really. Um, and then, yeah, I, I would say it cuts it by a third, probably the amount of time it takes. So we have a bigger, a better turnaround time. We can do like two episodes a month rather than one, that sort of thing. So awesome. Very cool. So I ask a lot of people that I talk to this question, but I would, well, not but, and I would like to ask it to you both as well. Uh, what do you think, like, if you could tell your younger selves getting into um, science, like, what advice would you give? What would you want to know as a younger person that you know now? I can go first, Natalie, if you want to yes, think please. on it. Okay. <laughs> so I'm... <laughs> A very type A personality who gets really fixated on the future. And so I would tell my younger self two things that basically work together is one, you don't need to have everything figured out because no one else does. And it's okay if you don't know exactly what you want to do right at this moment because you're going to figure it out. And alongside that is you never know what life is going to throw at you. And so there's going to be opportunities that you never even considered that you can just take and run with and you just don't know where you're going to end up. So for example, like I'm in the wildfire space right now. That was not even in my peripheral when I was in college. Like I did not take any wildfire ecology classes or anything like that. It kind of just fell into my lap um, and it worked out for the best. So I'm the type of person who really like wants to like grab onto something and like make it happen. And I kind of had to realize like, you kind of got to let go and things are going to happen as they do. And you just, you know, do your best to be prepared to take those opportunities when you get them. But, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get to the finish line. And sometimes you don't even know what that finish line is when you start and all of that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a little bit earlier on in my career than Rachel. And so hearing that is like really nice just to be like, okay, it's going to be fine. Like don't hyperventilate yet. Like <laughs> um, I'm still in my like unemployment stress dreams stage of building my career, um, which is just like such a zero out of 10. Um, I cannot recommend <laughs> the state of being. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah I think like you know I think about you know, my much much younger self um and I think I was just I understandably like so worked up about the like just the perceptual dominance and like the men in my STEM classrooms that made it like truly unbearable and like objectively unbearable um and I think it really caused me to like, you know, doubt myself and doubt, like have to be thinking through a lot of extra stuff. And I think that like, you know, was good and really helped, you know, me develop and formulate a worldview and all these things. And that was very positive. Um, obviously, like those experiences, not quite as positive and dare I say negative. <laughs> um, but um, 
I think what I would say is that like, you know, the, the best thing you can do is to trust yourself. Um, I think sometimes like when you tell like women, especially like, honestly, yeah, women of like any age to be confident in themselves, it always feels really loaded. Um, and I, I feel like I have these conversations back and forth, even like even now with like my friends who are men and they're just like, they're like, you're not confident or like, you should be more confident. You have a lot to like be confident about. And I'm like, but that's not like, it's, that's not, it just feels like it's a moot point. Like, and, but I do think that framing it in terms of like, tr- like, I feel like confidence is ex- external and trust is internal. And when you can build like a real trust in yourself you don't need to quite worry as much about um perceptual confidence as much as like you know what that like solid trust in self can bring and I think that that's I mean to be fully clear it's still something I'm really working on and something I struggle with I think if I had at like a younger age trusted myself more I would have maybe saved myself a little bit more angst (laughs) I like both of those answers a lot (laughs) Um, I feel like I could resonate with both in, in definitely some ways. I liked Rachel that you were like, you have to just like trust the process and like, you know, it, it will turn out how it's going to turn out. It may not be something you have your eyes set on because that's definitely happened to me. Um, but I also appreciate the, uh, <laughs> I don't, Natalie, what did you call it? It was like an unemployment stress dream. I, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> I feel very stable in my job and every every day have the unemployment stress dream. Like <laughs> and I think yeah. Yeah. So it's good to know it doesn't that, end. That trust in your <laughs> <laughs> never ends. Oh my goodness, yes. That's that's a good <laughs> thing to know. My goodness. As we sort of wrap up here, were there any last sort of like threads that you wanted to pull? Um, I know there are always so many at the ends, but um, anything in particular that stands out? I would just like to say to all the young women out there that are trying to pursue STEM, like, just do it. Mm -hmm. Just do it and don't stop. Yeah, I will say every day I see more and more women in STEM and the percentages are starting to be in our favor. I want to say like when I was in school, I know natural sciences tends to have more women than other STEM fields, but there were plenty of times where we were the majority and that was great to see. And I've had mentors that are much older than me who are, you know, women trailblazers. And yeah, I'm just really excited for the future. Um, There's more of us and there will continue to be more of us. Yeah, it's going to be so big, too, like, in terms of, like, changing culture, changing policies, like, um, I am, I think there's, like, a lot to, you know, a lot done and a lot still to do, but it's a lot to be really, really excited about. You are needed, you are wanted. Yeah. That's, like, a perfect way to end it. Yes, you're needed, you're wanted. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that was awesome. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Closing the Gap. If you like this show, subscribe on Spotify. You can also find us on Instagram at MVSTEMCTE, on Twitter at MidValleySTEM, and online at MidValleySTEM.org. Until next time, keep progressing.